This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Ben Korsha. And I'm Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Incubator. This week, we have the pleasure of having with us in the studio Dr. Rooney Toms. Rooney works for Envision Physician Services, where he wears uh, many different hats. He is the regional medical director for South Florida Neonatology. He's also the uh, national director of quality and safety, and finally, the national director for pediatric cardiology. Rooney, welcome on the show. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. Well, happy to have you. Um, we, uh, Daphne and I are very excited about doing this interview with you. You have such a fascinating life. You have such a busy schedule. Um, so we were very eager to pick your brain and, um, and ask you a lot of questions. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to it. So for the people who don't um, know your background, you were born and raised in Norway? That's correct, yes. I was born um, in 1969 in Oslo, Norway, um, and um, lived in Norway until I was 10 years old. And then you pursued your medical education in Germany, is that correct? Uh, yes, after that. So uh, when I was 10, we moved to Switzerland, um, and I lived there for um, another eight plus years. And, and then I moved back to Norway for a couple of years, and then ultimately I went to medical school in Munich, Germany. Very nice. And you are now a board-certified neonatologist and also board-certified in uh, pediatric cardiology. Mm -hmm. That's you correct. You are the former medical director of the University of Alabama Neonatal, Neonatal ICU. Yes. And currently, you work for um, Envision Healthcare and provide neonatal and cardiology services down here in South Florida. That's right, yes. Daphna, do you have any, uh, any questions you want to get us started with? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm initially just struck by how many healthcare systems you have been a part of, um, and I imagine that that impacts the the way you care for patients. So I, I was actually hoping that we might start there um, about how your background, um, especially um, in different countries overseas, um, impacts how you practice medicine. Yeah, that's 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 a good question, Daphne. And sometimes, honestly, I um, I kind of reflect on that myself. Um, you know, what um, what do I want to take with um, every single day when I see patients and when I, I when I kind of um, plan a project or, or work on optimizing uh, flow in a unit? And how can I take with my experiences from the different countries? And you're right. I mean the um, the places I worked, certainly in the Scandinavian healthcare system, um, and also the Swiss healthcare system and the German, um, is, is certainly um, something that uh, I reflect over. So let me tell you kind of how that has has shaped my path. And I do think the way it has shaped my path is that I've I really um, embarked on an on a journey of ongoing learning um, and trying to to self-reflect and be humble along the way because realizing that 
healthcare delivery is, is certainly a very complex um, industry and um, no one gets it right. Um, and um, in the sense that when we do discuss kind of the different national healthcare systems, um, just realize that, that it is difficult. Um, and I've, uh, I've experienced hiccups and, um, and problems and, and certainly very positive things in each one of them. And that's kind of why I try to um, define the path that I want to take when it comes to providing health care. Yeah, I love that. I, um, you know, we get so caught up uh, about doing things just one way. Um, and I think that you bring so much, you know, when we work together to the table um, in terms of, of your experience. Um, I'm also, you know, interested in hearing about how just travel and being, you know, new so many times has, has impacted uh, your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I that's that's a good question, definitely. I do think it, it does matter. <clears throat> like I said, when I was um, ten years old, we moved from Norway to to Switzerland, and I think that kind of really set the stage for how I was going to um, almost live my life. Um, living in Norway in a in, in a just suburban also community, um, the focus on education and schooling there is is, is unique in the sense that. Um, Kids are, are really allowed to be kids in Norway. So um, they focus on, on you spending a lot of time outside, um, just playing and uh, running around in nature um, and being physical in that sense. Um, and I would say up until fifth grade, there's less time uh, really at the, at the school bench and, and studying and less focus on academics in that sense. But I was taken out of that world and put into a, an international uh, school in Switzerland where, of course, there was much more focus on, on kind of performance from different, um, different areas. So um, that was really my, my first experience when it comes to being out of my element and being out of my comfort mm-hmm. zone. Um, and I guess almost that's something that I've continued to almost seek um, periods where I can be out of my comfort zone because I do realize and, and feel as though the rewards of actually succeeding in, in an area that's outside your, your comfort zone is, is very rewarding. So since, since we're talking about schooling, I wanted to start off maybe by asking you as well, when you were in school, what would you answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> that's a good question. I, you know, I would say uh, it evolved over time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, up until I would say maybe early uh, kind of middle school, eighth grade, ninth grade, um, I was wide open. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something maybe a little bit more artistic. Uh-huh. Um, and then mm-hmm. um, in middle school and beyond, um, the concept of, of serving people was something that I liked and I thought I understood. And as part of that, I, I felt as though medicine was an obvious answer, um, even though I, I guess at that time I didn't realize that medicine is so much more than just serving um, the people. And it is a form of art as well. It is the most definitely a form of art. So, um, and, and, a, and a form of philosophy, you name it, it it's, it's everything. Um, so ultimately, um, of course, that's a path that I took. And right. I think, but it started with really... Um, working with people as a wish to, to work with people. And so following up on that, as you, you went through your schooling and you went through, through high school and, and university, 
Um, what, after being in medical school for a few years, made you lean towards a career in, I guess, initially neonatology? Yeah, and that, again, was not a, a, a straight path for me. Um, I actually... Um, I actually wanted to become a neurologist, believe it or not. Yeah. And I was, fasc I was fascinated by the, um, um, the kind of the early French, uh, neurologists and, and, and the, the kind of the Charcot's uh, and yeah, exactly, the Charcot's <laughs> and, and, and also some of the, um, psychiatrists and, uh, kind of Southern Germany and mm -hmm. such. And, and, um, uh, but, um, then it just happened that the, um, the hospital that I was doing my internship in, um, in internal medicine at the time, um, um, I, my rotations in, in neurology were just not what I thought they would be. Yeah. I think it's, this, it's always the, the, the disappointing aspect of neurology. Yeah. I think myself included, I was very interested in neurology. And from the physiology standpoint, there's so many interesting things to mm -hmm. learn and to discover. But in practice, yeah. it becomes such a restricted field that you, you have this sense of letdown. Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I wish I could do more for these patients. And, and somehow it's like the brain remains this impenetrable box where... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was so excited, showed up with my reflex hammer ready to go. <laughs> but uh, no, it just, uh, once the CT scan was done, then there was no more physical exam. Right, yeah. right. That's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's so funny. I uh, I felt the opposite. I wanted nothing to do with my neurology rotations. And it's not until I uh, landed firmly in neonatology and that I uh, really kind of developed a passion for what was going on in the in the in the baby brain. Um, so that's so funny how you know our experiences shape us. Um, I'm hoping we might be able to go back um, and talk about that um, artistic side. Uh, we know that you're um, uh, an excellent clinician um, and we know that you uh, love poetry, um, but I think kind of your artistic side is probably even deeper than that. <laughs> I wouldn't know definitely if it's if it's really all that deep, but uh, it's it's certainly deep when it comes to admiration for art and and the arts. And I will say, um, and you, everyone knows this, and anyone who works uh, clinically in neonatology, all the hours you spend in the hospital, um, sometimes at the bedside, um, but often just walking hospital halls and and. Um, eating by yourself in the call room and that kind of stuff. And, and I have found during that period um, a lot of inspiration in art. Um, there's something so tangible and something so living uh, when it comes to, to art um, that it feels, I feel as though I kind of rekindles this um, life within me that I can bring kind of as a thread throughout my both personal life and um and um, professional life. And I feel as though it makes me a, um, a better clinician. That's very interesting that you say that because there's so much data and, and literature on the effects of art on the mind and the mm -hmm. soul for patients. Mm -hmm. But we sometimes Absolutely. fail to recognize that clinicians may benefit from the uplifting aspect of, of being exposed to art and, and of all its beneficial properties. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that one thing that that struck me after knowing you for for now a few years is is your is your passion for poetry specifically, and I'm wondering what do you find in poetry specifically that that brings you this sort of emotional relief that uh, you may not be getting from another art form. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, first of all, <clears throat> I'm um, I'm not a poet myself. I wish I was. <laughs> I've and and there's no doubt I have tried, but I'm you know. <clears throat> 
I, I'm humble when it comes to that, and I realize how how difficult it is right. to use the right words and actually use the, the language. And um, but what really strikes me is that um, reading a piece of poetry from say something you know written a couple of years ago to something that was written a hundred years ago, it's this again thread of humanity, right? And the fact that there is someone sat down. Um, 50 plus years ago and wrote these pieces and, and the words and put them together so beautifully on a piece of paper um, that it touches me when I read it. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that is very powerful because it's almost as if you can um, share something emotional uh, with a person that you don't even know that mm. um, actually wrote this 50 years ago. And I find my, I, I, I am, I'm, a big uh, lover of the arts and as well. And, and I like ballet and I like paintings and, and sometimes I find the art and the, and, and the choreography within the NICU mm -hmm. to be very reminiscent of different art forms. I feel like it is a bit like a ballet babies coming in, babies coming out. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if, if poetry was maybe like the rhyming aspect of it, the symmetry sometimes between different bed spaces, different rooms, and you're seeing the connection points I yeah. think that's that always struck me as after after seeing your passion for poetry, it sort of uh, made me wonder if if there was not uh, true literal poetry within the NICU as well. Well, it, it's probably true, and and you know there is also some order to it, right? And and when you work in our field, you kind of you focus on order because you you need that order every single day, and and I feel as though the longer I do this, the more order I feel as I need, right. um, and um, and I respect and and kind of admire the order uh, that's found in poetry, even though sometimes the poetry is written by something very um, some, sometimes organic, like, you know, life and death and, mm -hmm. and love and all those things that we uh, live and breathe every day. So the, the right. order is part of that is, is also fascinating, I find. So go, go, going back to your training, I, I'm wondering after you have um, – Where, where did you did you train in pediatric cardiology? Was that still in Europe, or did you do that in the U.S.? Well, um, in in Norway, when you train as a pediatrician and then ultimately a specialist, it's it's generally that you train for five years. Mm -hmm. You start off as a as a pediatrician and do general pediatric calls, and then you do a subspecialty training mm -hmm. um, as part of the um, neonatology subspecialty training. Um, many neonatologists then. Um, do some degree of um, neonatal echoes in the okay. unit. And that's uh, where I was fortunate to have a, a boss at the place where I, I did train who was a pediatric cardiologist and a neonatologist. Um, and he taught me echoes. Um, so early on in my um, neonatology career, Um, echo was actually part of it. And, and, and so just to clarify, so that, so is that standard in, in at least Scandinavia to have this, this training in uh, point of care ultrasonography as a pediatric uh, resident? I would say it's almost close to standard, but there um, of course, That's some great. who spend a lot more time doing it. Um, most of them ultimately do not become pediatric cardiologists, um, but um, ultimately do some degree of, of targeted echo at the bedside. That's that's such an avant-garde type of practice that we're just getting around to in the U.S. Mm -hmm. trying to implement this as a standard and and to see that it's already yeah. sort of pretty widespread in, in Scandinavia is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. You were going to say something, Daphna? Yeah, no, I just I feel like we're just kind of um, you know 
at the beginning <laughs> in the states of really using point of care ultrasound, um, and it is so uh, much more prevalent um, over overseas. Right. So I think that's really so, really interesting. But f for the listeners, I mean, it's not because you got some training in point of care ultrasound that you are. Mm -hmm. We call you a cardiologist. You actually yeah. did train in cardiology. <laughs> that's correct. Yes, I don't want people to think you're a fraud in any way. <laughs> <laughs> So, so how did, where did the training actually then, so, so that led you to pursue an, a formal training in cardiology, I suppose. Yeah. So ultimately, so what happened was this, that it's, and again, it's, it's not a straight path. Um, I, um, my wife is from the U S mm -hmm. and, um, we, we lived in Norway during my initial part of training. She did some training there. Both our, 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 our girls were born in Norway, but our plan was really to move to the States at some point. Right. So then, um, as part of the move was then finding a place where I could continue my training or train. Um, ultimately, I um, ended up um, um, taking a, a fellow position in neonatology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, mm -hmm. and uh, worked with um, Wally Carlo there, who right. is a great mentor, great friend, um, and amazing role model. So um, then training there um, in neonatology and then ultimately pediatric residency at the same place, um, once I was done, I started working as a neonatologist in the unit there. Right. Uh, and then, um, they were expanding their cardiac program mm -hmm. and, um, they needed more cardiac intensivists. Um, and, um, I became somewhat of an obvious target, um, to send on to, um, train, do some extra training in cardiac ICU. Right. Um, so therefore I, I went to Boston Children's and did extra training in cardiac ICU. Um, again, trained under Peter Lawson, who's an amazing mentor, um, now a great friend. And I just, um, think the world of him too. And, um, and went back to Birmingham, UAB and, um, built up, um, together with others, uh, cardiac ICU there, pediatric cardiac ICU, and then also neonatal cardiac ICU in the NICU. And so, so I think wow. it's, a, I think it's a very modern issue. Um, as I recently completed fellowship myself a few years back, and, and there's always this, this question that lingers for um, any new fellow graduating, should I pursue additional training? Mm -hmm. And it it's feels silly to say this to you, but there's always that question, my God, this is extra years, extra financial strain. And, and so I guess you seem to be a, a very endurant person, but what I'm wondering is how did your family take this additional training uh, at the end of such a long road that, that, that you were coming to the end of. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been lucky who, to have a very forgiving wife, of course, uh, <laughs> throughout this uh, the time period, but you know, we're, <clears throat> we are a, a strong entity. We're, we're good friends and we share a common kind of vision and interests. And, um, the way she actually took the trip to Boston was really an exciting, um, time with the kids. Um, and, um, every time that I, you know, came home from post call or whatever, you know, we'd be ready to, to either go on, uh, on the freedom walk or, uh, do some kind of historical trip or, or go up into nature in New Hampshire or Maine or whatever. So we just, we, we, we kind of agreed, um, to make it something special for the kids right. and for ourselves. I'm not saying it was easy, <clears throat> but we managed to do it. So now that we think back, it is, um, it was a very good time for us. And um, Rooney, she's a professional also, and it sounds like you've been um, 
you know, equally supportive of uh, kind of her endeavors as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been, we've been working as a team again and it, it, of course, um, there's always some, um, you know, difficulty to, to always give, um, kind of a full clear, uh, path mm. on both ends. But I would say, you know, she has probably made more sacrifices than I have, uh, when it comes to career. Um, so, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm grateful to her for having made those sacrifices, but we have worked as a team throughout this and made decisions together. There's no doubt. Let, let well, me ask you something. Amazing. Yeah. I wanted to, to ask you about what your perspective is for the future of neonatology. Do you think that this, your path is going to become eventually the norm where neonatologists will need an extra training in, in either cardiology, um, there's, there's pediatric, there's neonatal fellowship in neurology as well. Um, do you think that this will remain um, sort of the outlier or this will eventually become the norm? I think it's becoming more and more of a norm. <clears throat> and let me just finish my path because I, I don't think I've completed <laughs> so, the, my so that God. Uh, 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 <laughs> listeners understand exactly where it ends because it really did, didn't end with cardiac ICU because then um, I, and I'll, I'll kind of come back to your question, Definitely. but, um, you know, once I built up the, the neonatal cardiac ICU aspects of the, of the, the NICU. Um, I was at times, uh, because I could do some of the echoes myself, um, but they weren't official. Right. Um, I wanted to, you know, even though I worked very well with the pediatric cardiologists and we collaborated, talked all the time, but every now and then, um, when you follow the babies every single day, um, uh, for months, um, Say, say an AV canal, uh, trisomy 21, that's um, kind of stuck on CPAP with 35% oxygen. And then you follow the echoes, you follow them clinically. And um, if something starts deviating clinically and that just doesn't fit the path, you want to put that echo probe on yourself and try and understand exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, you know, over-circulation or is this over-circulation with pulmonary hypertension or is it pulmonary hypertension or is it some kind of um, function issue? Um, and that, those situations really led me to wanting to um, become a, you know, a board-certified cardiologist so I could do those echoes myself. Right. Um, and that's when I ultimately did cardiology fellowship. Mm-hmm. And just for everyone, uh, once you've done one fellowship, the next fellowship is only two years. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it still doesn't make it better. <laughs> yeah, I'm like not sure how much difference that <laughs> Anyway, so, um, but, uh, so back to your questions, Ben. Yes, when it comes to um, cardiac ICU, uh, most larger centers now have double-boarded people mm-hmm. uh, in either pediatric cardiology or, or um, in um, uh, critical care pediatric critical care or uh, critical care and um and other stuff so. yeah i've seen i've seen neurology infectious disease and i think it's very it's very nice and honest of you to say that because it will help young graduates decide what to do if they understand that this is the path that the field is taking and hopefully i'm just saying this hopefully maybe uh, neonatology fellowship programs who can offer sub fellowships will start integrating them maybe already within the third year of fellowship mm-hmm. so that the time constraint cannot be uh, too significant. Absolutely. And I, I will say, um, do your research. Um, many people ask me exactly what path they should take. And I think, um, if, if you're going to take a path, take a path that ends up with, um, true credentialing, um, and, um, 
find maybe ways in which you can uh, use an institution to support you so that you're not mm -hmm. always on your own, so that you're not necessarily, um, you know, um, taking the burden of, um, of the, fun the financial burden and, the, and also the, the family and physical burden of maybe, say, traveling and that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, if an institution can support you through a partial attending position mm -hmm. in fields you're already board certified, yeah. it might, uh, might not take away the time commitment, but it might relieve some of the financial strain that it can place on people, especially in this day and age where people have loans to repay. Mm -hmm. This might actually make th th this advice is, is it's a strong one, I think, because yeah. it might make it easier. Absolutely. And there are some um, early positions as, say, assistant professor, for example, where you can actually um, negotiate is kind of a, a strong word, but you can make an agreement that um, you can um, do some training towards uh, a fellowship completion, but also work partially as an attending so mm -hmm. that you will have that salary. Um, and then you can also fulfill some uh, fellowship time. That's Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And Rini, it sounds like you've had um, some good mentors as well along the way. Can you speak uh, to kind of any of those special relationships? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Daphne, I, th I do think mentorships are, are very powerful and, and, and also friendships along the way. Um, so I will say, you know, it started early. Um, and, and I think that's, that's part of being open, um, to being mentored. Um, so it started in Norway. There's no doubt with, um, um, uh, Dr. Hals, who, who was my first boss, uh, who taught me, um, kind of the, or taught me the echoes and, and introduced me to the world of pediatric cardiology. And then of course, um, Dr. Carlo in, 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 in Birmingham. And, and it's really, um, his influence on me was such that anything was possible. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you could, you can do anything regardless of, you know, and then, and it's, it's so freeing to work for someone who has that mentality. Um, and, um, I, you know, I may also add, you know, it's, uh, you know, coming from Norway and then having a, a mentor who's all, uh, you know, who came from Puerto Rico mm -hmm. culturally, it's, uh, of course, we're, you know, some somewhat pretty far apart when it comes to both, uh, rhythm and, and, and emotions, but, um, <laughs> but it's been wonderful. So in, in that sense, I, I feel as though he, you know, the, our relationship has kind of helped me kind of expand on, on so many levels, mm -hmm. um, no doubt. Um, so since, since you mentioned this contrast in cultures and, and, and origins, I think we've all heard the aura of Scandinavian medicine and without going into a broad topic like Scandinavian medicine, at least for the purpose of neonatology, what I know you, you're, this is a subject you're passionate about as well, but what, how would you define um, what are the, the, the main driving lines of Scandinavian neonatology? How does that differ from, from the American way of doing things? Yeah, that's a good question because <clears throat> honestly, I've been, been working with some of my colleagues in, in, in Scandinavia to actually try to define, define the Scandinavian way of practicing neonatology. And I, I don't think we actually have a, a, it hasn't been defined, but uh, what you will experience is a much flatter hierarchy structure, um, mm. a, a kind of a more cohesive um, team when it comes to uh, the nursing staff and the physicians. 
Um, if you not, not seldom, if you walk into a unit, you won't tell the difference between a physician and a nurse because they kind of wear the same type of scrubs and uh -huh. such. Um, and we all know that that kind of hierarchy when it comes to central Europe is, is very strong sometimes. And also in the U S, um, <clears throat> you kind of have that hierarchy. Um, but I think the, the, the most important part of it is really the focus on the family. Um, and, um, it's really the concept that um, a child or, or a neonate, um, it's, it's to the point of it being seen as an as a individual or human right uh, for them to have the family um, in the unit 24-7. Uh -huh. um, and it's because it's in their best interest to be held, uh, to be loved uh, by their parents and their families. Um, so that is something that really drives the Scandinavian model. And as part of that, it follows a lot of other stuff when it comes to, um, you know, of course, the use of breast milk. I mean, uh, you, you barely, when I worked in in a community hospital at, in Birmingham, you walked in and there um, there was a whole room with formula. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd never seen that much formula in my <laughs> life before. So, you know, that's that's something you don't even consider really um, so much in, in, in Scandinavian neonatology. Right. So that just comes as a natural um, addition to including the family in the unit. And I, I certainly feel that when I, when I watch how you interact with families and how much you care for them and they, they care for you. So how do you think we can, you know, disrupt our, our way of uh, practicing to include some of um, those values? Well, I feel very strongly that it, um, everything we do, um, every single day as, as neonatologists matters. Mm -hmm. Every time we open our mouths, every, our nonverbal communication matters. Our presence in the unit matters. Um, and of course, how we talk to our colleagues, our nurses and, and, and families. Um, and I feel as though humility is very important as part of it. Um, and just, um, inclusion. Mm -hmm. inclusion, um, regardless who the parents are, uh, regardless of what their pa uh, kind of background might be, um, finding some degree of common ground when it comes to, um, say, maybe being parents or being being humans in that sense. So always mm -hmm. presenting and showing that um, we're equal and we're here to care for them and we're here to guide them through the whole process of, of the NICU stay and, the, and their experience in the NICU. Let, let me ask you something about this, this idea of having the, the whole family at the bedside and so on, because I feel like in the US we are rather good at having mothers and fathers at the bedside. But one thing that had, to me has been a huge hurdle to overcome is having siblings. And I am wondering if from your experience in Scandinavia, did you did did you find that NICUs were able to bring in siblings to the bedside of a, of a NICU baby? Yes, yes, we um, certain units are are very good at doing that, um, and uh, you know you'll have a brother or sister uh, kind of spending time um, in the unit. And when I say unit, it really depends on the architecture. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not saying that you can't do family. Um, centered or family inclusive care if you don't have a single room unit where you can actually roll in a full kind of adult bed for the mom or dad to actually lie in. Mm -hmm. um, but um, not seldom would uh, we actually have two beds in the in the room. Both mom and dad would spend time with with the baby um, and 
we would also then also have siblings come in and sometimes do skin to skin with the, with the baby. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really amazing. That's I think, great. I think that's a big, that's a big jump because of if we want to truly perform family centered care, we need to include the siblings that may be feeling left out at the auntie or at the uncle or at the grandparents when, when really mm -hmm. the, the, the mind, the, the, the parent's mind is being occupied by the, the critically ill. Exactly. People. And I think, you yeah. know, the, the concept of physician centric, um, kind of, um, day processes when it comes to hospital care versus patient centric. And I mean, there are numerous examples of, of uh, physician centric care where mm -hmm. of course, you know, you draw labs in at four or five in the morning so that uh, we will have lab values for, um, for rounds. Right. I mean, that's, that's it's physician centered and it's and not really thinking mm -hmm. of the baby first. That's, exactly. that's very true. Exactly. And then, and then, you know, rounding on well baby, like we talked about the other day, you know, to have them uh, walk into the unit at, um, and, see the baby at five, six in the morning. So you can leave post call, for example, I mean, mm -hmm. again, physician centric, not family centric. Mm -hmm. So, uh, always ask those, uh, those questions, what's best for the family and, uh, what's best for the family when it comes to the whole coordination of, uh, being present in the NICU. And I really appreciate you actually defining the term, um, calling it physician centric makes it so much worse because we do talk about getting better at family centered care, but we ignore the fact that what we're currently performing has is an entity in and of itself. We think that family centered care is going to come out of this, uh, the, out of this uh, chaos that doesn't, that has this, this sort of vacuum, but it really isn't. It's coming at the expense of, of physician centered care, as you call it. And I think that's a very good way of defining it where we put our needs before sometimes the ones of the families and the patients. Yeah. I agree. And I think uh, I will tell you, you know, some of the, the, the longer I do this, some of the most rewarding times and some experiences are really sharing um, time with families. Mm -hmm. And um, and so actually taking the time, taking that extra kind of um, extra time to focus on the family and communicating with them, um, they give you so much back. That's true. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me as as we're talking and, and now that we've both known you and a number of years that um, the way uh, you treat families, you know, with, with such respect is, is the same way uh, you communicate with, with your colleagues. Um, and it seems like it's almost a passion of yours to help people find their passion. Um, where did that come about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> I guess definitely kind of goes back, um, uh, as I said in the beginning, when I moved from Norway to Switzerland um, and going to an international school there where I spoke English. And um, when when I was out, out of school, I would uh, live in a world where people around me spoke Swiss German or German. So I lived in three different worlds that I kind of went in and out of. Um, and I went home to a very Norwegian household um, and a uh, Norwegian culture. Um, again, it falls into being somewhat of an outsider, but I say that in a, in a positive yeah. way because I've kind of been an observer my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, observed the Swiss culture when I sat on the train and observed um, friends at school from, you know, from England or from France or Scotland or from the U.S. or Australia, which is also fascinating. Um, as part of that kind of learning to observe, learning to, to see people for who they truly are and where they come from. And then, um, 
kind of through my own path, realizing that um, you can really pursue, kind of pursue um, anything you want. Mm-hmm. And um, then finding and seeing that in others is also something um, that I find very rewarding. And I, uh, and I have been so grateful for people who've seen something positive in me, help me bring that forth. Um, and that's something I want to share and, and, and do to others also. That's, that's great. Yeah, as they say, it, it takes a village, right? And raising babies, but and raising physicians as well, I guess. That's right. <laughs> that's absolutely true, Daphne. Since, I mean, I, I am fascinated by not only your path, but your ability to juggle so many different things. As we said at the the opening of the podcast, you have you, you wear so many different hats and you wear them well. I mean, you're extremely competent and efficient. And so... I guess I've never asked you this, but this is the right opportunity. What does the first 90 minutes of your day look like? <laughs> well, honestly, um, I, I take it pretty easy. Yeah, I, <laughs> But that, your definition of taking it pretty easy yeah, might no, be not no. the same as ours. Exactly. It was, it was, <laughs> it was funny because, um, at some, when I took a master's class at some point, everyone were to write down exactly what their first uh, couple of minutes were of, of, of the day. Um, and I would tell you my pretty much um, for 20 plus years, um, every morning consists of having a cup of coffee in bed with my wife. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is, you know, sometimes that goes on for, for, for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, even 30 minutes. Um, so I do think there's a lot of value to, to actually taking a breather, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and reflecting and actually doing, uh, you know, having some just random talk and, uh, and, and bonding. And that's, that means a lot to both of us. So yes, um, that's, those are my first, uh, at least 20 to 30 minutes. That's good. And, and I mean, you're, you're one of the few physicians and, and, um, and mentors, I guess, who really has put the emphasis um, on me on on mindfulness and work life balance, mm-hmm. and so I guess what I'm wondering is is how, what are your tricks and your tools that that you use to enforce this separation between work and home, and uh, because I think this is something that we all struggle with, mm-hmm. and I think it's even more pervasive as a young graduate because as a as a trainee there's sometimes no way around preventing work from intruding on personal life, but you're hoping that as you become an attending, you're going to be able to have more control over that. But sometimes the bad habits of fellowship carry on. And so it is something that I found myself struggling with deeply and, and considering your, your wealth of experience, I'm wondering what, what have you found to be efficient and useful? Yeah. So I guess, First of all, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm perfect at doing the things that I do, but I'll tell you the things that I try to do, um, both f- from, um, from a kind of family life standpoint and, and, and professional. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to, I try to be a positive influencer on both areas. So say, for example, family, um, when you come home, um, I park the car in the garage. Mm-hmm take a deep breath and I say, okay, uh, when the kids were smaller, I was going to be the, not the one who brought the burden from work and not the one who, who complained and not the one who, um, uh, brought in problems. I was going to, um, be the greeter, positive greeter, positive presence from the second I walked in. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I would 
plan uh, projects. So I would um, say maybe if I was on call on, on a Saturday for the next Sunday, I would plan, say, to build an obstacle course. Uh, or mm-hmm. I would plan um, to uh, maybe do, say, um, Japanese flower, uh, flower arrangement mm-hmm. uh, in the afternoon and, and learn about it and discuss it and kind of try to create moments that would um, kind of also create memories and um, make a picnic and go out in the forest, sit by a, a waterfall or something like that mm-hmm. um, and, and, and make it unique um, and actually take the effort to do that and plan it. So um, that's, and then also realize that uh, I have two girls and realize that I don't necessarily always have to, solve their problems um but um i um sometimes just listening right and and sometimes being a good father is sometimes just being there um and um when i've when i haven't acted the way i wish i had acted if i lose my temper at a wrong time or something like that um i apologize mm-hmm. yeah i try to apologize mm-hmm. when uh when i do something that i shouldn't have done um, so that I tried to be consistent in those manners. Um, and I tried to be aware of those things. And, um, again, I tried to put away my work, put my phone away. Um, and even if I had say patient duties and, and the kind of backup stuff, I would, I would put it someplace else and I would go in and check it every 10 minutes or something like that. I've, I've started doing that as well. I mean, if I take my daughter mm-hmm. to the park, I try to leave the phone in the car mm-hmm. and try to be a hundred percent with her because it's just not something that's under my control. If the phone is, is, is with us, it's going to interfere. Yeah. So I completely yeah. uh, echo your sentiment there. Yeah. And then for, for uh, professionally, um, I, I mean, obviously I've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, when I pull up in the garage for call, I, I still take a deep breath and right. say any kind of, um, you know, any kind of problems from the outside world, I'm not going to bring into the NICU. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a hundred percent present for the patients. Um, and almost the longer I do this, the more aware I am of the fact that I can miss things miss trends, mm-hmm. um, you know, miss a baby getting sicker or miss not following up with a parent, for example. So mm-hmm. I tell myself, heighten your awareness when you're in the NICU, right. because then ultimately when you come, come out on the other end, you've done the job that you want to, mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. That's, that's very good advice. And so on these trips to home, to work, what do you listen to in the car? Yeah. Um, it's very broad, Ben. It really is very broad, and and it depends. We know on, that, yeah. and it depends on my my mood and what mm-hmm. I need. But I, it's you know, I mean, I'm, I, I love classical music. I listen to everything from you know, um, uh, I love operas. I listen okay. to Verdi operas, and I like, but I like Mozart operas too, and uh, and I, um, I like. Um, Chopin, mm-hmm. uh, listening to Chopin on I-95 is, is like being in two different worlds. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and, um, and Schubert's Winter Eyes is also something beautiful. It just kind of sets the stage. I like, again, if kind of a thread of, of, of kind of humanity that goes through those, but I also love, you know, uh, Rolling Stones and 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 <laughs> anything else, you know. That's, that's uh, so absolutely. So this so is very very broad. Looking back at your path, you are like we said, you're an accomplished physician, an accomplished father, an accomplished mentor, 
and you have excelled everywhere you've gone. I was wondering, what was your most memorable rejection? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I will say um, the path, sitting here where I am now and having this uh, this talk and you telling me that I'm successful at everything, um, you know, the whole path has been um, basically a lot of rejections along the way. Okay. Um, and I will say, uh, I, I mean, there's so many, Ben, there's so many. Um, and, and that's it's hard to believe, it, yeah. but, but, but sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and I would say, you know, it's, it started maybe, um, let's start with, you know, I applied for, for 20 at 20 medical schools, right. I was admitted to one. Okay. Uh, applied for 21 jobs after my, um, after medical school. And I was lucky to almost get one. I got it like a, a half time job when I got it. Cause it's different in Norway. You don't right. go through like a match and everything. So, um, and I got half a year contracts at a time. So it's been a lot of stop and go, a lot of stop and go. So you think that has built your resilience? Yes. Yes. It's, um, it has built my resilience almost to, to the point where, um, I am, yes, it, it certainly has. I was going to say always build it to a point of where I seek that kind of, um, I expect it, you mm -hmm. know, I just, I don't expect mm -hmm. success. Right. Uh, and I realized along the way that you never reach that moment of success where you say I have arrived. Right. But, and then you reflect over the fact that it's a journey. Mm -hmm. So now, obviously now I'm, you know, I'm thinking back my whole life has been this journey with ups and downs and I'm still on that same journey. Right. So, um, so therefore rejections are part of, uh, of the successes along the way. It, it brings me back to this book by Ryan holiday called the obstacle is the way and yeah. how each obstacle is, should not be seen as a deterrent, but should seen as, as the path. Yeah. And these obstacles sort of remind you of what success feels like and make you sort of, and, and allow you to grow along the way. So I completely, completely understand what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah. Definitely. So go ahead, Daphna. No, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of, of our time. And I know there are a few questions that Ben likes to ask everybody uh, who has been interfacing with us. And so I just wanted to make sure we got to some of those. Yeah. So I, I wanted to, to sort of wrap this up with a discussion on the contrast and the differences between uh, academic and private practice neonatology. I think your path is very interesting. I think you 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 succeeded in the academic world, and uh, you recently decided to leave that world to join um, Envision uh, Envision Healthcare, which provides neonatology services all around the country. And so, I am wondering um, what was your mindset and your thought process when you made that decision. Yeah. So I I would say you know what academics teaches you. Um, at least me, was that um, creativity and innovation is something that you need to have as part of your everyday professional life. Mm -hmm. And um, that is something that um, uh, I have brought with me. And um, when I, I did apply for this job at Envision, uh, which was more a, a larger administrative position too, um, part of that was really building something. And to build something, I think you need creativity. 
Um, and you need um, innovation and openness in the sense that you need to um, give people the benefit of the doubt. You need to um, inspire them. Uh, you need to um, create an environment where people can grow and thrive. Um, and I think that is um, that is def definitely something I brought with me from academics um, because your days may be slightly less structured in academia. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and you constantly seek inspiration uh, from visiting speakers to discussions um, to other things at the university that inspires you. Um, so all those things is basically like a driving force. And I think that's something, um, or I know that's something that I brought with me as part of this position now. So in doing some research for this podcast, I was able to talk to some of your fellows who said that you had this, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, pattern of, of taking fellows out of the NICU to Starbucks in the, within the, the, the walls of the hospital to discuss whether it was complicated cases, to discuss research. And so... The people I spoke to said this was really a trend. This was something you enjoyed doing. And I am wondering, what do you feel are the benefits of breaking away from the NICU to have these sort of sessions yeah. with mentees and, and students and, and learners? Well, I do think, again, it's, it's, it's so easy to, in the NICU, to kind of see everyone as a, as a workhorse and someone who needs to finish a task or go and go and check an x-ray or, or follow up on so-and-so and pull the line or whatever it might be. Um, but to actually see um, the fellow in this case as a, as an equal human being mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and share experiences. So I think going out of that environment um, often to me helped, helped them, kind of to some degree maybe open up mm -hmm. um, and feel more comfortable just talking generally about life and kind of what we've been talking about today. It sort of melts mm -hmm. that structure that you were talking about earlier. I think that's very true. Hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it also, I mean, Daphna and I are aware of the fact that you've been very involved also with the NeoHeart Conference. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think you've recently been named the chair of that conference. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the what Neo Heart is about and, and uh, for the folks listening who might not uh, be so familiar with that conference. Yeah, no, exactly. So the, the Neo Heart Conference is actually the conference that's put on by the Neo Heart Society. Mm -hmm. um, so the Neo Heart Society was um, uh, started, I don't know, like 2012 or something like that and, and, and really started with Amir out in at, at Children's Hospital Orange County um, and um, which had, he had a vision and, um, and and Victor kind of helped build that up together with Ganga up in, in Colombia. Um, and, um, and I joined and it's been, it's been fun. And really what this is about is joining um, the concepts of uh, NICU philosophy and management with pediatric cardiology and um, pediatric cardiac intensive care. Mm -hmm. Um it kind of crystallizes out to some of our kind of softer aspects of NICU care, family involvement, all that kind of stuff, use of breast milk, uh, feeding strategies of babies with congenital heart disease, um, but also uh, vent management um, and, um, and overall kind of how we manage the babies throughout their entire um, complex hospital stay. That's very, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does, how does, what is the forum for these types of discussion? Is there is there publications, websites, conferences? 
Yeah, so so we have the New Heart Conference, which uh, which um, has been on uh, once a year. This twenty twenty one is we're not going to have a conference, um, but last year we had a virtual conference, mm-hmm. um, and um, and then we also have some white papers coming out uh, that's going to be published through the American Academy of Pediatrics soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so we are are working on influencing mostly, I would say the the. The cardiac ICU, uh, pediatric cardiac surgery world, um, and having more of a neonatology voice within that forum. Yeah, and the creating that bridge, I think, is essential. There's been a, mm-hmm. a very, very wide gap between the specialties, and so the more communication and, and partnerships that can be built, I think, the better off we will all be, and the patients will, I think, benefit from all. Yeah, this. and collaboration through and through, everywhere from prenatal uh, aspects of management to consultations to the real perinatal uh, management too. Um, and again, through the hospital stay. Mm-hmm. Daphna, did you have uh, anything you wanted to ask? Well, I you have so much um, education and expertise and experience really to pull from. And you may have kind of a different perspective than some other neonatologists that, that we'll have on. Um, and I'm just wondering kind of what is maybe the biggest uh, change or most influential paper that's come out in your your career so far um, that has influenced the way you practice? Uh, I think and that may come from cards or, or you know. I, I, you're breaking up. So for the people who couldn't really make what you were saying, you, you were asking Rooney, if uh, which practice both in the field of neonatology or cardiology has been the most influential during his career. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, I, there's a, I would say a more mindset than anything. So um, when, when we work in the unit and we kind of uh, established uh, the presence of care, I would say um, meta-analysis and evidence-based care is certainly uh, one aspect of practice that has changed, um, which is a easy platform to always go back to. Um, you have evidence that you can use and build up protocols and, and aspects of the care that you provide every single day um, in the NICU. And I guess really the focus on this type of evidence care happened during the kind of the time that I was growing up as a neonatologist. And I would say that the second thing to add to that. Uh, will be the focus on healthcare quality and safety. Um, again, as you know, um, before there was a lot of variation in management of uh, in the NICU, and there still is, um, but really the focus on this, the, the quality aspects of things, again, being uh, compliant with the evidence and tracking your compliance with the evidence, um, knowing that you, when you're taking care of a baby, you are doing the right thing. And knowing that... Um, when uh, when it's middle of the night and you're not there and someone else is taking care of the baby, they're doing the same thing and it's based on evidence. So I would say uh, rather than picking out one uh, kind of article or one, one specific practice, I think it's a big umbrella of evidence-based um, care, um, that platform um, wedded with quality and safety that has really changed um, med- practice of medicine over the last 10, 15 years. That's, that's fascinating. Um, I guess because it, it feels like this is almost like an unachievable goal. I feel like I've, every time we have, I've sat for journal club or for critical care sort of meetings and discussions, there always seems to be so much disagreement and the evidence is so scrutinized and the papers are 
dismissed, not dismissed, that it feels like we're never reaching truly a consensus and that things are always evolving. Um, and there's this, this, um, this, this, sometimes this trend and, and this need for people to feel like they're on the cutting edge and to try new things and really be uh, avant-garde about certain things. And that, again, goes at the expense of consistency of care. And uh, I found that it's a, it's a worthy goal because I think it's extremely difficult mm -hmm. to reach. Um, and so I guess, what would be your take? And it, would you favor consistency over the most up-to-date? Sometimes we're a bit um, too crazy about really doing the thing that the last paper mentioned. Mm -hmm. Would you favor consistency over implementing the latest, sometimes maybe not as well proven evidence? Most definitely. But I would, I would add consistency and presence of the person who, or the clinician who knows um, what that consistency consists of, right? if that makes sense. So uh, imagine, for example, I feel as though if I put the right clinician uh, with a 24-weeker and, and an old ventilator and another clinician um, with the fanciest uh, ventilator, I know if I put the right clinician with the old ventilator, um, if that person is 100% aware of, of the practice um, that, that reduces um, the risk of complications and BPD, they can use that old ventilator um, to optimize the care. And the, the fancy new uh, automatic ventilator will not do the same thing. So I do feel very strongly is that, that awareness of what you do every single day in addition to, um, to protocols and reducing variation that is, is optimal care. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, knowing, knowing tools. Yeah. Knowing the tools and also understanding why you're doing the things you're doing with the tools that are at your disposal to then use new equipment, new technology and new evidence mm -hmm. to improve on those goals and, and, and on these tools. Yeah, exactly. Daphna, any, any last, uh, any last words, last questions for Rooney before we conclude the second episode? No, I, I just want to thank you uh, for your time with us today, but also um, for really your mentorship these last uh, few years. Um, it's it's uh, nice hearing a little bit more about your life. <laughs> yeah, I, I will second those the, the, those uh, sentiments. I think I think it's it's been awesome knowing you, and it's been awesome working with you, and and finding out a little bit more about you throughout this uh, episode was definitely enlightening and makes and uh, explains a lot of other aspects of who you are and of your personality. That's great. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Rooney. Thank you, Daphna, for joining us uh, by phone. Uh, we wish uh, that you were here with us in person. Pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.